Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For this episode of What Could Go Right, I'm speaking with Alyssa Quart. The proximate reason for this conversation is her recently published book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But Alyssa has been charting fascinating stories of individual lives and individual struggles for many years. She as the author of four previous books, one called Branded, about our advertising culture, Republic of Outsiders, about people who, as the title suggests, are not fully integrated into what we call a norm, but have their own fascinating stories, Hot House Kids, and Monetize, which is a volume of poetry. She writes a bi-monthly column for The Guardian, and she is also now executive editor of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which is a journalism nonprofit that is founded and run by her and Barbara Ehrenreich. She uh, was a 2010 Neiman Fellow at Harvard, has been nominated for an Emmy and a National Magazine Award. And she takes a hard look at what's going on in our world today and stories of people who are manifestly struggling to either stay within what we call the middle class. She calls a group the precariat, those who are really on the fringe and trying to stay on that fringe and not fall back. And she has, I think, a, an unusual way of, of telling people stories and finding them. She has tracked many of the people in this book for many years. And while her overall conclusions do not suggest that a whole lot is going right with the American dream these days, I think telling those stories and having an engaged conversation about that is 
part of the necessary mix, and I'm looking forward to hearing her thoughts. Here talking with Alyssa Court, who has this brilliant new book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, based on some intensive reportage and stories across the United States of individuals and families who are feeling no longer able to maintain a position within what used to be, as Alyssa says, a very stable middle class. And I've known Alyssa for a long time and watched her career and watched what she's written with fascination and admiration simultaneously. So this is a fascinating book, Alyssa, and I think also comes a little bit out of your own personal experiences, right, about Mm -hmm. what you started confronting, you and your husband started confronting, having a child in an incredibly difficult, challenging, expensive New York City. But but you then went around and started talking to a lot of other people to see where those experiences were shared and, and what else was going on. So if you could, in your elevator pitch way, just, just tell me a little bit about what you learned, what you saw, what you were looking for. So when I went around the country and called around the country and emailed around the country, I was looking for, I was basically trying to take the temperature of what politicians were referring to as the middle class, you know, why, why was it, it was a useful category politically, it seemed, and even by companies like Uber, like, that like to talk about their middle class drivers, but not so much for actual middle class people. So I wanted to ex- see what the experience was on the ground. And I wound up talking to adjunct professors and lawyers who were out of work and nurses who were afraid their jobs were going to robots, just a whole range of people kind of on the edge. And then because I follow people for years, and this book started five years ago, I started reporting it, things happen to the people. And some of them are good. So, you know, it's not all a bleak story. Maybe this is part of your podcast theme (laughs) Um, that are – expectations get overturned, but they didn't get overturned in a foundational way. It just was, it was characterological. Like people would figure out how to live differently, marginally differently, and have a somewhat better life by the end. Some of the people. Were you surprised by anything? I mean, so you started this four years ago. When you started, what was your theme? Was it exactly this? Was it a little bit other than this? What was it? It was this. And I, I, one thing that surprised people was I wanted to include um, people who were peering into the middle class and wanted to get in but weren't there traditionally like care workers or, um, you know, night nurses or, uh, you know, um, people who were doing just-in-time labor, you know, for Home Depot or working strange shifts. And I wanted to include these people as a piece of this broader book on the middle class because I felt like a lot of the books for middle class parents just delete those caregivers and the the whole apparatus that is like a nesting doll that is supporting the struggling middle class. So there are two kinds of struggle going on in this. That was an effort to connect these two things for, I think, for publishers too, in the publishers' minds. But um, I'm glad I did because I feel like recent, like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York and Queens has sort of shown the use value of connecting the working class precariat and what I call the middle precariat or uncomfortable, struggling middle class with a 
uncomfortable struggling working class conceptually, like that there's a value to bringing these two constituencies together. But are they really different constituencies or are they just different ways of self-identifying? Well, I think they're both. I think some of the middle class people in my book came from working class or lower middle class backgrounds. And I guess this is part of why they weren't always able to stabilize or find a net for themselves. You know, when you and I went to grad school, and if we couldn't get a job initially, right, we'd have something from our parents. Some of the people in this book didn't have that, right? So it was like a complicated identity. Like they were trying to become middle class, and they got the training to do it, but it didn't quite work out. And then there was nowhere for them to go for support, right? They couldn't go back to their families. So that might be one story. And that was an identification, a blurry identification. Some of it is just earning power. I mean, the nanny is making considerably less than, say, the IT guy in outside San Francisco who still identifies as struggling, even though he makes, you know, six or low six figures. Although it's funny, you know, I wrote this book I realize it's almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago, called What's College For? And there's a whole section there on adjuncts and tenure and the challenge of it. Now, granted, in the greater scheme of things, right, higher education is a it's a small niche in terms of employment. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of people, but relative to a world of 300 million, it's not a huge one. And that was an issue then, too, of like adjuncts who couldn't make ends meet. I think at the time, as you point out in in your chapters on that in Squeezed, uh, you could be an adjunct teaching a full load and and make less than the janitorial staff cleaning the the classrooms in your community college because at least the janitorial staff had some sort of local union that that allowed them to have something resembling a living wage whereas the adjuncts didn't so i mean not all this is obviously a new thing right i mean it's it may have become increasingly acute i mean i went to graduate school in the late 90s and i put that in the book and in humanities and i saw the writing on the wall and I actually had an interesting conversation with Ron Lieber, a personal finance columnist for The Times, at a book event in Brooklyn recently around Squeezed. And he said, well, didn't any of these people in your book, like the adjuncts, see the writing on the wall? Why did they still go ahead and do this? And I think some of that is, goes back to class, too, in the sense that not all of them had the kind of cultural capital to be able to read the signs as well as like we might have been able to, you know, they just knew they wanted to get an education. Their advisors were telling them to go ahead and do this, you know, and, and they were just not reading the tea leaves properly. So I think now it's kind of obvious, like if you still go ahead and become an adjunct, you're, you're, you know, entering a very, you know, you're kind of be on the edge. But I think, you know, I don't know. I think even like 15, 20 years ago, not everybody knew that. I mean, I do wonder whether or not there's a kind of the scales falling away from our eyes, you know, that we are now much more acutely aware, and then you bring these stories to life that makes it impossible not to be acutely aware of the vast swath of society that, given either expectations or needs, is completely unable to find the material sustenance to meet that, right? Mm -hmm. The question is, was that so different 30 years ago, or did we just tell ourselves a story that that blinkered us to that reality. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we probably told ourselves a story, um, but I also think I mean some of it is like the sheer cost of education, right? So let's say it's doubled in cost since 1996 um, in public universities. You know, when I went to J school in 97, whatever it was, it was not a huge amount. I, I can't even remember, but it was not you know, my, my family could cover it outright and they're not wealthy, you know, and now it's like $70,000 or something. So 
if you're going to get into one of these careers, part of it is how much expense you're going to pay to get a graduate degree and the student debt you're going to be carrying. It is of a different caliber than it was 20 years ago. Right, and that's certainly true of, I mean, of any elite private university. I, I went to Columbia. I think it's, uh, tuition wasn't above $10,000 by the time I graduated, and it's 50-plus now, plus another 20 for, you know. But same with, uh, it's double the cost. They did a study, it's double the cost in public universities, too. Right, with and with less public funding, much less public funding. I mean, this is an interesting question, though, of, like, what is the middle class? I mean, is it is it as an actual category? Is it a self-identification? Yeah, I feel like it's both. I mean, I always like things that are psychological and existential, you know, and have to do with people's sense of themselves as well as, like, you know, whatever, the numerical, how it's counted. It's counted, I think, as between 42 and 125000 a year earning. And... Um, but as we know, in San Francisco, they just had this thing that you could be considered lower income with $117,000 a year. So uh, it's very geographically dependent, even when we put a number on it. And then the, secondly, it is a conceptual category. It's like, how do you think of yourself? Are you, you know, when you say, who, who am I, do you say you're middle class? And, um, and I think that's interesting, too, because I think, you know, if you think about the 60s and 70s, so much of the activity then was, you know, with around the kind of intelligentsia that we came out of, Zach, was, I don't want to be middle class. It's like petite bourgeois. It's humdrum. It's revolutionary road. I want to escape its stability and its banality. And now it's like, it doesn't, that stability is no longer the cliche around it. Like, <laughs> and that's a huge shift too. I mean, just as a conceptual, even literary category, a middle class means something different than it did. 30 or 40 years ago. How much of this, uh, and this is a provocative question, you know, meant provocatively, how much of this is that our, our expectations of what constitutes a baseline of, of life, how much of that has expanded continually, but our ability to meet that expansion has either contracted or stopped? Meaning, the size of, I've mentioned this number a lot just because it's an easy peg, right? That the size of a Levittown middle-class house in 1950 was seven or 800 square feet. And the average, even the median for a family in the United States today is 2,100 or 2,200 square feet. And that's even without adding in the kind of absurdity of the McMansions. That's, you know, maybe that's a silly statistic, but it's a question of have our has our baseline of what we think is acceptable expanded faster than our ability to meet that? Maybe, but let's think about this here. If you were born in the 40s, and then, uh, so you were 30 in 1972, let's say, you were 92%, it was almost assured that you would uh, earn more money than your parents. Now the odds are 50-50 in earning more than your parents, according to a study by the Quality of Opportunity Project. That's different. <laughs> And so we're not just talking about people living in, you know, giant gated community houses or, oh, they're eating too much avocado toast. One man said that, right, about the millennials. This is why they can't buy houses anymore. You know, but I think the point is they can't afford houses. <laughs> so maybe they're spending some money on avocado toast. But I, I don't think that that's, that explains it. I think there's a real change in what people have and 
how much security they have and what kind of future they have to look forward to. That would have been the Marie Antoinette line of the millennium, right? Let, Let them, them eat, eat avocado, avocado toast. toast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure there's hot pepper flakes on it. Yeah, yeah. So then there's the other question, which I've been and continue to be curious about, and I don't think there's a clear answer, which is until X, X being at some point recently, income maximization was exactly the way that you could judge whether or not your life was better because it allowed you to procure more of your needs and some of your desires. And that remains true you know, around the world, GDP maximization being a kind of governmental imperative for almost all societies now. But what do you do if many of life's necessities are becoming increasingly less expensive, in which case, in theory, and some of this is truly in theory, you wouldn't need more income, right? If, if everything you needed to do was having a cost. Like food or, or children's toys. I mean, given um, globalization, some of these things are cheaper, right? Like housing's more expensive. Obviously, education is, but there are things that are more one can afford pretty easily, even the struggling middle class. So that makes your point. But whether or not that's compensatory for for the rising costs of health care and education. Yeah, it's not, is it? Because, I mean, for instance, like a, one of the characters in my book, um, this woman, Michelle, she had a, a normal birth. Her child was 10 pounds, 13 ounces. It was kind of big. So she had to stay in the hospital an extra day or two. But that was it. She had health insurance. And then she wound up on the hook for $20,000 in hospital debt because her insurance was bad. Um, she's a librarian. She also has a lot of debt for different graduate school programs, so she could train and retrain. So now she's a technological librarian because just being a librarian wasn't really paying off. So she's just kind of typical, but think about that much money. You know, she's got tens of thousands in, in school debt and then now healthcare debt. There's just no way that having like a cheaper veggie burger at night is going to make that up, <laughs> you know. And how did you find people? I mean, how did you find your stories? I went through unions. I went through nonprofits. I went through web hubs like What's Your Plan B, which is a sort of terrifying um, Facebook group with 10,000 out-of-work journalists in it. <laughs> um, don't go there. It's, it's wow. very depressing. Yeah. But it's got an immense amount of like talent and good writers and stuff just hanging out there. Yeah, those are the main ways. And then, And you tried to... I mean, you you do go throughout the country in this. It's obviously not just a like an. And is there any regional variation, or do you think this the kind of the experience of in the precariat is more of a national phenomenon that isn't so different whether or not you're in you know San Francisco, Denver, Grand Rapids, you name it. You know, anecdotally, like I talked to this one uh, graphic artist who was in deep Wisconsin whose husband was now working at a supermarket chain, even though he had multiple graduate degrees, et cetera. Uh, he was working on the floor. And she said that, yes, they have really cheap housing, but now she can't network and get jobs. So they're sort of suffering in a whole other way. So if you are part of this middle precariat that's dependent on certain industries like media or law or academia, I mean, a range, right? How are you going to get those jobs when you're living in a Rust Belt community that is far from industries, like live industries at this point, you know. Um, so that that was interesting to me. And I did talk to a number of people like that, actually, who were sort of spread around and in small towns. And that a lot of them were saying that that was what they were struggling with. I mean, there is this whole movement now, because it's a viable question of like, you know, what do you do if you're in 
former Rust Belt parts of Ohio or Western Pennsylvania or upstate New York, you know, what what does the economic future hold and how can you, if you care about your community, try to create one? And there's a, you know, there's a whole move by Steve Case and some others to create a kind of a rise of the rest. We should invest more and, and, and revitalize those communities. It's obviously too soon to tell whether any of that will work. Did this leave you more negative about the utopian gloss on the gig economy? Yeah, I mean, I was always extremely negative about that. I mean, I felt like just on a, a humane, on the level of the humanity of, of being a gig worker, I feel like there's a lot of alienation that's just implicit in, you know, not knowing your colleagues and, you know, being on call and, um never, you know, being a contract worker for life and and also, you know, having kind of false promises in terms of places, things like Uber about how much you can earn um, because a lot of the, the drivers I spoke to were not earning close to what was promised. And then to be risking being replaced by a robot. It um, actually, it was interesting. One of the conversations was with a organizer who was trying to organize drivers of cars and uh, rideshare cars and truckers against robots. <laughs> kind of like the, how do you do that? Um, but that was, they were having these phone calls and each, each driver would be on their um, Bluetooth across the country talking about it. So I love that image. And what, what is their potential? Um, I mean, is it just we shouldn't license uh, driverless cars? We should restrict? Do they have a sense of what, what the bulwark would be? My feeling, and I kept advocate this in the book, is we just need to, like, use restraint and try to slow this process down. And the kind of irrational exuberance around it is going gonna, gonna to put a lot of people out of work. And that was the feedback I was getting from drivers when I was speaking to them. They were worried. I mean, in addition, things like trucking we're, are a gateway to the middle class for many people. I mean, you can earn up to $70,000 being a trucker, and most many of these guys were not, are not well-educated, right? This was like, like nursing. It's like a portal into the middle class, you know? So I think we have to think carefully before we replace this job, even if you imagine it's what David Graeber would call a bullshit job or a bad job. There are plenty of people who got a lot of sense of self-worth and income from it for many years. I mean, there's a whole school now that talks about the end of work and what do you do in a post-work society, right? Um, and then there's, on the left, there are more calls for kind of a universal basic income because, you know, clearly if work is not going to be as necessary to get certain things done, people are still going to need means to meet their needs, right? Where do you come out on, on that? Yeah, well, I have a lot on UBI um, or uh, basic income guarantee in the book because I wound up talking at length to, like, people who are planning the pilot in Ontario and um, Scott Santins, who's one of these big UBI advocates. And it was interesting to me. I mean, uh, in theory, I support it. Um, I don't know how implementable it is, but um, I just just practically when I saw what how many, of, especially these were women, who would have a disabled kid or an elder that they were caring for, and they were working in this increasingly precarious middle-income jobs, I thought, wow, if they had 12000 or 20000 more a year, their lives would actually be rational, you know? And that, that seemed like a, like it seemed like a worthy goal to me. You've been doing a good bit of, like, interviewing publicity discussion over the past uh, 
time since the book came out. Is this a, a left-right issue? Well, I mean, with UBI, no, right? I mean, we have Charles Murray and Y Combinator and all these libertarians supporting it. You know, they have the World Economic Forum projecting a loss of 7 million jobs, you know, whatever, by, I forget, is it 2020 or 2026? And two-thirds would be concentrated in, like, advertising public relations and law and financial services, like things that are considered middle class. Right, the coming kind of white-collar irrelevancy, which has been more insulated until recently. I think that libertarians and conservatives can see this on the horizon, and they have, they have reason to wonder also about um, controlling for robots and um, about UBI and so forth. And in conversations, I mean, have you found that is, is the right likely to take these realities and say X versus the left is likely to take these realities and say Y? Yeah, I, mean, I, I feel like the right is likely to agree with these realities, but then they might have a different, they would definitely have a different set of fixes. Potentially UBI would be the um, overlap or DIY, barter and trade or all this kind of stuff. They'd, yes, do it yourself, you know, and, and not the, the bigger like universal pre-K, which to me has been one of the more successful initiatives in New York, definitely, right? And that that seems like it would help a lot of people in, in different local localities around the country if that was put into practice. And what about this question of vocational education, right? Because a lot of these, you know, a lot of the higher education debt issue, some of the worst of it is uh, minority communities, people in their 20s who, who are told they have to get X degree in order to get Y job, but then are beset by childcare costs or whatever other issues and, and may not even end up finishing the program. And then they're left with all the debt, none of the degree and none of the earning power. Um, but it's a kind of a kind of a credential tax, right? Or one could look at it as a credential tax. Do you think with more vocational education rather than funneling everybody through really expensive, time-consuming two to four year degrees. Yeah. Or shorter degrees, which I think Obama was what, what Obama was advocating for, you know, like two year degrees and not just community college, um, but just shorter degrees and more debt forgiveness. And I mean, we don't always have to be rushing to, you know, get people trained for um, some uh, apprenticeship for something that might become technologically outmoded relatively soon too. I mean, there, there could be problems I could imagine with an emphasis on vocational training. So, but what if we had more debt relief? What if we, I, I saw there was an article recently also about some employers who were enticing employees, it was in the Times, with, pay, with paying some of their college debt. So maybe we need more imaginative projects like that where, you know, um, you have, you have um, debt forgiveness, you have, um, you know, uh, employers, uh, chipping in, uh, you just have a different set of expectations around debt. Do you think any country other than Scandinavian countries, which kind of remain the go-to for dealing potentially more constructively with things like health care, child care, uh, time off from work, flexible work schedules, but to be fair, you know, these are three or four, four or five countries with less than 30 million people collectively, as opposed to the United States, which has you know, we'll have 350 million people and a lot more variety. Do you think anyone squares this particular circle? Well, I mean, it's, it's a lot of industrialized West does better than we do, right? Like, it's not just the Scandies. It's also, I mean, it's Canada, it's Germany, I don't know. 
um, France. It used to be England, right? Um, so, I, I mean, when I was looking at all the maternity leads, uh, uh, you know, across the across nationally, and then also pregnancy leads, it was just astonishing how bad uh, America had it. And when do they? I mean, I guess those nets, right, were were developed gradually over the past 30 or 40 years, but certainly not just in the past 10 or 15, right? If right. And there was a moment, right, in American history, you'll, you'll know this, when Nixon was considering helping to create a net in 1971 to, in order to address all the needs of working mothers, and then he vetoed it. So we almost had a foundation for this, and it was taken away, you know, more than 40 years ago. So in your at the end of your book, you do have a whole... Um, discussion of solutions and and how to deal with with inequality and how to deal with these issues. I mean is is inequality the issue or is it just lack of lack of a, a swath of society being able to meet their needs? Meaning if there was more equality, it could be worse equality. Like it could be more people not able to meet their needs. You could potentially have a lot more poor people who are struggling and it would be more equal. I mean I don't think the opposite of inequality is equality. I think the opposite of inequality is justice, you know. So I, I don't like equality. I think it's a, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think equality is really problematic, right? How does that work? You know, um, we're not all the same, but we can have more fairness and justice. You know, I think this is part of why people don't like the word inequality. I've written about this. Um, I think people like this idea of fairness and, you know, that people get an, as much a share as they can, right? It's not going to necessarily be an equal share, but this is where something like a, basic income guarantee would be useful or subsidized daycare just so people can actualize themselves, you know, somewhat, right, and live in a fair, you know, it's not going to be a, the great society, but it could be the, a greater society. And that's how I, that's how I frame it in my mind. That's a nice phrase. Not, not a great society, but a greater one, which allows for kind of a process of change rather than the reaching of an apex. Yes, because I think it's all process and even a practice of putting into place and piloting, uh, say, the universal pre-K, even with flaws, or let's say somebody went right ahead and found a way to give more paid maternity leave and longer paid maternity leave, that in itself would become like a model. And I mean, I think we're part of what we're seeing um, is we're seeing some sort of new ways of unionizing um, that are non-traditional unions, but, I mean, the Atlantic wrote about this, they're kind of white-collar unions, and they include the, the organization I run, Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which I run with Barb Ehrenreich. Um, it's a journalism nonprofit, and we sort of come into the fray when DNA Info has um, done union busting and closed shop when the, the um, employees tried to unionize, or the Denver Post when they didn't make a 20% profit, they only, I think they only made an 18%, like some really, quite a high profit for a newspaper. Um, and the kind of greedy owners um, started downsizing nonetheless. We created funds to try to give these journalists um, some money for their work. So there's sort of these other spaces um, that are starting to open up around some of these middle-class jobs that are, there's even like nonprofits now uh, for adjuncts and um, plenty of them actually, and nonprofits for lawyers, believe it or not. So that's, um, or former lawyers. So I think this is like, people are starting to realize it's a real problem. And given that unions are only something like 7% and the private sector 
they used to be 30 in the 60s, like that is something that we're going to have to find alternative ways to organize around. And do you think this is going to be most productively addressed at a national level or local? So things like universal pre-K was obviously a New York City endeavor, Seattle, and minimum wage. Oh, I think, lo- I think yeah, local. Local. I mean, the things I've been most impressed with are like Fight for 15, Emeryville, $15 an hour now, right, in California, or, yeah, Seattle, as you're saying, or our universal pre-K. The possibility is that we could start doing all these things locally. It's, it could incentivize us, you know? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Jim, Jim and Deb Fowles have a new book out about sort of going to... Our towns, yeah. yeah. I saw that. That looks really good. And that also is a look at a lot of creative... Um, passionate solutions to many of these issues, but all stemming from local activism and local activity, not looking to Washington for a fix. And, you know, whatever one feels about the current occupant of the White House, there's also, I think, some real structural questions about whether or not Washington can or, or certainly will, irrespective of party and who, who's there, be able to address a lot of these issues. And that maybe the, that greater society is a function of a lot of micro efforts rather than the template we grew up with, which is somebody comes into Washington and there's a big consensus and X is passed, right? A big bill that says we're going to do all these things. And, you know, maybe that's not the future. Maybe that shouldn't be the future. And maybe it should reside with all the energies of all the people that you look at, right? And these communities that are trying to grapple with these things or not as the case may be. So did any of this leave you somewhat hopeful or did it leave you somewhat in the same place or, you know, where did you come out? Well, some of it, some of it did. I mean, as I said, just the sort of nature of people's lives that if you follow the, like the way I report, like I follow basically characters, like I'm not programmatic in that way. I'll just find people in it or in like a poignant and interesting situation that seems novel to me and I'll just follow it for years and keep following up and following up and seeing what happened to them. And, yeah, what's hopeful is that individuals do find ways of changing their lives and they'll figure out how to get a new job or they'll figure out how to consolidate their debt or, you know, they're just be, they're too small that um, their successes are too small for me to recommend them as solutions. But I can just say that individual will is, is remarkable. And I also, I mean, all the reporting I did pointed me to all these other solutions, you know, that are within reach and you could say they're pie in the sky, but they're things like maternity leave, better maternity leave or pregnancy uh, leave or um, better norms around pregnancy discrimination. We have a lot of laws on the books, but I have a whole chapter where many people are being discriminated against for breastfeeding and for um, being pregnant on the job. And, you know, we could, we could just start looking at how uh, the oversight of some of the laws and the kind of norms that we've accepted. I mean, Me Too has done a great job of that, and maybe we should be moving on to things like pregnancy discrimination now. And what if we start to build awareness of that? And I saw there's a big Times article on it. I was applauding it in my mind because I was thinking, yeah, they're moving on in a good way. This is what needs to happen. Well, I hope you'll continue to do the work that you've been doing for years of telling stories of people whose voices are otherwise invisible or not heard in a really cacophonous culture where they ought to be. And you have a really acute way of addressing these individual stories with an immense amount of empathy and compassion, which I also think is uh, somewhat in short supply in a media and journalism and commentary culture that 
tends to look for the black and whites and the extremes. So I think it's great that you have been pursuing this the way you have, as diligently as you have, and also obviously the Economic Hardship Project is its own its own way of addressing some of the, the challenges that you've identified. So congrats, good luck, keep it up, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Zach. It was a pleasure to be here. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.